Hello and welcome to episode 37 of the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Fagala, and today we have Dr. David Flatt. In fact, David just graduated. He is now officially a cardiologist. He's been going to school for as long as, uh, well, I guess most people have been alive, it seems like. So uh, congratulations to David. Today he's going to be continuing our Romans series, getting into chapters one through four. And so we're going to spend four weeks looking at four sections of Romans. This week we're going to kick it off with chapters one through four. Romans, as we said last week, uh, considered to be Paul's masterpiece, and a lot of people consider it to, in fact, be the best letter um, of the New Testament, best book in the New Testament. And so there is a ton that we're going to get through today, a lot of really deep and essential theology, a lot of doctrine that's based on even these first four chapters. I can't wait to learn more from David. I promise you it'll be worth your 30 or 40 minutes. So let's jump in right now with David as he gets into Romans chapters 1 through 4. Jump into Romans 1. So Kyle last week uh, gave one of the best introductions of of Romans that I've ever heard. So if you weren't here last week, check out the podcast. Uh, Kyle did a great job kind of talking about who Paul was, how important the book of Romans is, how it's structured. You've got this really cool um, picture in front of you. This is from a group of people who run what's called the Bible Project. And so they do these posters about every book of the Bible. They make these videos. It's, uh, it's really been helpful, I think, uh, to a lot of people, including me. So they divided Romans up into what they called four main acts. So there's four acts in Romans. The first one is 1 through 4, then there's 5 through 8, then 9 through 11, then 12 through 16. So since I um, am involved in making the schedule and thinking through who teaches which day, I chose that I would teach Romans 1 through 4 because I think they're probably the four most fun chapters in the whole Bible. So I was like, I'll, I'll teach those. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. I just found the front end, I think it's almost certain that I'm not going to do these four chapters justice because their beauty and their importance just can't, I'm not capable of articulating them. Um, but I'm going to do my best. And so before we jump in, I, I want to kind of maybe lay some foundations. If Romans is, import, is as important as so many people say it is, um, then really to, to, under, to fully understand Romans, you kind of got to understand the context that we're coming at it from. So let's just kind of do a little background um, thinking, and then we'll kind of go verse by verse, not verse by verse, but kind of look into the text itself. So we've talked about this before. There's a lot of ways to think about the gospel. There's a lot of ways to think about what is Christianity. I think this is a, a helpful way to think about it. There's four kind of core principles of, of life and of the Christian life. The first is separation. So this is probably, at least in a secular world, the most controversial, right? But it, it's where Christianity begins. It's that you are morally responsible for your behavior, and because you're a sinner, you're separated from a holy God, right? And so maybe that's not the thing that brings in the crowds on Sunday morning. Maybe that's not the most fun thing to ponder um, at, at night or to, to tell your children at bedtime Bible story time. But it's, it's true, and, and Christianity begins here. We are separated from God. And so from that separation flows really the rest of Christian theology and all its beauty and all its goodness. So one of the things um, I think about in life, if you, I want to think, you to think about a time where you heard some news that you thought was really good? When was a time when someone told you something and it just made you feel ecstatic, overwhelmed? You might have, I mean, like the kind of news that makes you cry or, or laugh or just be overwhelmed with joy. And when you think about that moment, I think almost certainly in that moment, there's a background of risk 
or bad news coloring the situation, right? So uh, just to make a concrete example, a lot of times, not a lot, sometimes in medicine, we get to tell people good news, right? So you get to say, your heart failure has gotten better, we fixed um, the artery that was blocked, you know, you tell someone good news. And sometimes the patients are overwhelmed with joy and appreciation and what have you. The reason though that they're so overwhelmed is there's a background knowledge of, I thought I did have heart failure, or I thought I was having a heart attack, right? So if I, um, maybe I pull Anna aside after class and say, Anna, you're not having a heart attack. I mean, I guess she might, whatever, she might appreciate it, but it wouldn't mean the same thing as if you were to tell a, a man who thought he was having a heart attack he wasn't having a heart attack. So all that to say, the background knowledge of good news makes all the difference. And so the background knowledge of the gospel, of the good news, is that we're separated from a holy God. And so if you miss this, then the rest of the gospel doesn't really make sense, right? It doesn't connect because it's like, well, great, you can put in... Um, you know, Reeves, that's great that you can fix my hip, but like, I, I don't have a broken hip. Like, what, what doesn't even matter? And so the same thing is true about the gospel. So it starts with separation. The next idea is this idea of justification. So this is a word, you know, sometimes we're worried, we get scared of words that have extra syllables, but this is the word the Bible uses, and it's a legal term. And so it's the idea that you're declared righteous. You're made right before God. So you were separated. In, the, in God's law court, you were judged a sinner worthy of separation from God, and God declares you righteous, no longer a sinner. The third principle is called sanctification. And I think this is really important. We'll talk about this in a little bit, but the order here is important. This is two and this is three. So what is sanctification? Sanctification is a process of progressively becoming holy, progressively becoming godlike. So the moment that God declares you righteous... Are you, do you automatically live a moral life? Uh, do we have a, a church where a thousand people in service this morning that, that don't live sinfully? sinfully? Is, is error and selfishness and pride and greed and racism eradicated from the church? Well, no. Well, why? Because this happens, this is a declaration. You are righteous before God. This is a process. The Holy, allowing the Holy Spirit to work through you to sanctify you, to make you more godlike. So this is, this is essential Romans thinking here. This is really this week, right here. This is next week, this idea of sanctification. So when you, so like Romans 5 through 8 and 9, that's really what that's about. And then finally is glorification. And so this is something I think I'm ten, I tend to neglect, right? So one of the good things about teaching is you, t you teach to yourself when you're preparing and thinking. So I live in a very worldly world, right? I think about what are we, what am I doing next Tuesday? I got a schedule, I got a plan, thinking about my children, and maybe if I'm really thinking in the future, I might think, well, what do I want, you know, my retirement account or my grandchildren or, you know, where are we going to do whatever? But I don't think about what am I going to be doing in 10,000 years, right? But that's, that's a biblical view. It's because 10,000 years from now, I'm going to exist. And if I trust in Christ, in 10,000 years, I will be glorified, and I'll, I'll live with Him. And so we spent some time on that. We'll get to that at the end of Romans. But I think this is an important kind of foundation for what we're coming at through Romans. So there's two main problems in Romans 1 through 4. Two main problems. They both start with C. The first is our condition. And our condition is that we are sinners. Okay, so Romans 3, which we'll get to in a little bit, says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So again, that's not something that like, um, 
we probably think about much or we say much, but the, your main problem in life is not that you don't have enough money. It's not that, it's not even that I'm not happy enough or that I don't have the right size house or that I am not a moral enough person or that I told a lie or any of that. The, the biggest problem is that I'm a sinner separated from God. So these are, these are biblical problems, problems that separate us from God and that kind of form the identity of who we are. So because we're sinners, the second problem in Romans 1 through 4 is the consequence of our condition. Okay, And so the consequence of our condition as sinners is that we are under God's judgment. Again, probably not a word that we like to say in church. Judgment, God's wrath, is God a mean guy? Um, but I, again, I think the background understanding of who God is and who we are is essential in under, to understand what He's given us. So we're, we're, our condition is that we're sinners, and our consequence of, of being sinners is that we're under God's judgment. Okay, so all that being said, let's jump in to Romans um, 1 through 4. I'm going to spend just a little time on each chapter. Each chapter will have a key point, which I didn't come up with, the, the Bible Project guys did. Then we'll look at a key verse from that chapter, and we'll kind of try to break that down. Then we'll come up with a quote that somebody said um, about that, that point, and then finally we'll finish with a gospel truth. Okay, So we've got a little bit of time, so let's jump in here and see what we can come up with. So if you've got your Bibles or your phone or whatever you want to turn to Romans, we'll kind of try to dive in. The key point in Romans 1 is that all humanity is trapped in sin, needs to be rescued okay so this is the idea of separation all humanity is trapped in sin needs to be rescued if you don't believe that I think the rest of Romans is going to be tough for you to wrap your head around I would contend if you don't believe that that there's a lot of evidence from history and just from life that things aren't right and I know when I lay in bed in, in the quietness of, of night and kind of have a moment to reflect and think about who I am, um, I'm not right. You know, there's, there's things kind of deep inside my heart, desires I have, things that I want in life that I wish weren't there. And what that is, that's sin. That's things that separate me from God. And that sets the foundation for understanding the rest of the Bible. So let's look at these, kind of break, break down this verse uh, from Romans 1 and see what we can make of it. So... Again, this is not like the most politically correct verse, but I think it's a, a verse that's just kind of foundational for understanding uh, the rest of Romans. So, uh, Kyle, you want to read it for us? Sure. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. <coughs> Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Okay, so Paul here, chapter 1 is really about um, what you might call like pagan moralism. So people who haven't received the law, who aren't, aren't Jewish and are living outside of God's will for their lives, right? So this may be people 
this may be like a lot of people we know, friends we know, who are, would consider themselves moral people who certainly have strong moral opinions about a whole host of issues, um, but um, don't, don't, uh, aren't people of the book, so to speak, don't know the Bible, haven't received the law of God. And so you often hear this question, well, what about somebody who um, hasn't read the Bible, doesn't know God's will for their lives? How do they... How do they stand in judgment before God? I think it's an interesting question. I'm certainly not going to come on the, the scene of Christian history today in the next 20 minutes and answer that kind of question. There's a lot of, I think, relevant texts in Romans 1 through 3 about that. There's, Paul has this weird line in Romans 2 that says, uh, if, basically, if people act according to their conscience and they live uh, consistent with their conscience, that God will give them eternal life. So I don't know exactly what that means or how you, you fit all that in. certainly think it's interesting. The more important question to answer here, though, is how do we stand under judgment of a God even if we haven't received um, a special revelation from the Bible? And so that's what he's talking about right here in verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. So even the people who, who had not received the Torah, who had not received the Old Testament, there were things that they could know about God that were plain to them in nature. <coughs> God had shown it to them for his invisible attributes. So if you just live in the world and look at the world, you can see his eternal power, his divine nature. They're clearly perceived ever since creation in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to them, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise, but they were fools, and they exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So here there's almost a picture of people who were unwilling to follow the standards of God, so they created idols for themselves. So here's how um, John Piper summarizes, uh, or not summarizes, but kind of plays off of this um, truth in Romans 1. He says, The infinite, all-glorious creator of the universe, by whom and for whom all things exist. It's Romans 11 who holds every person's life in being at every moment, is disregarded, disbelieved, disobeyed, and dishonored by everybody in the world. That is the ultimate outrage of the universe. So, right now in church culture, what I would be doing if I was sitting listening or thinking about this is I would be thinking about all the different people I know who aren't living the way that I think they should live. Right, So you think about people who live over there or who, people who go over there on a Friday night or people who do this thing that I don't do. And the reason we think that way is, is complicated, but it has to do with who we are as humans, who we are as sinners. We're prone to separate the good and the bad and draw a line in the sand and put ourselves on the side of good and think about the bad over there. Right, And so especially in church, that's a place where we're comfortable doing that. That's not the biblical picture of sin, though. The line between good and evil, between sin and righteousness, does not go between them and us. It goes right down each of our hearts. Because I am a sinner, and, and I am separated from God because of who I am in my nature and how I live. So it, this idea that God is disregarded, disbelieved, disobeyed, and dishonored, that's not something they do. That's something that we do. Right? That's something I do. So this problem of separation is not their problem, it's my problem, right? So until, until we own who we are as people and are honest with ourselves about who we are, the rest of the gospel doesn't make sense. 
It's telling a person who thinks they're healthy that you've got a cure for a disease that they don't believe they have. It's just a meaningless conversation. But Romans 1 is here proudly declaring that we are separated from God, right? We are separated from God even if we're not Jews who have violated the law. It's not a real fun chapter, but I think it's an essential chapter. The reason Romans 8 is so great is because it's coming in the background of Romans 1 and 2. Okay, so let's look at Romans 2. So Romans 2 is also a bad news chapter. When I said I love Romans 1 through 4, I really love Romans 3 and 4. Romans 1 and 2 are just essential to understand Romans 3 and 4. So Romans 2 is that rescue won't happen by obeying the laws of the Torah. Rescue will not happen by obeying the laws of the Torah. So Paul's writing um, to this church in Rome, right? Kyle talked about this last week. It's kind of an interesting context. I guess the whole Bible is written this way, but you can just see parallels between biblical history and the, the history we're living today. So the church in Rome, remember, the Roman emperor or the Roman governor kicked all the Jews out of Rome, right? And um, so the church was a purely Gentile church. So Rome, the church in Rome, there's no Jews in the church. It's only Gentile church. Then Nero comes to power, and Nero welcomes back in all the Jews into Rome. So now the church is integrating Jewish and Gentile. So you can imagine, once all the Jews were out of the church in Rome, the church in Rome became very... Um, it became very important to them how, they, how Christianity was separate from Judaism, right? So they would really emphasize things like we don't have to be circumcised. We don't have to follow the rituals of the law. It's, it's not, um, we don't have to become Jewish to be Christian. And so that would be, that, of course that is true, but that would become almost the identity of the church in Rome. Now the Jewish um, Christians are coming back, and of course to them, their Jewishness is much more important than Jewishness would be to a, a Gentile Christian. So you can imagine this tension there, right? This tension of uh, now that J the Jewish Christians are coming back, and they're like, so, so we're eating meat sacrificed to idols now, and no one's being circumcised, and we're not following any of the festivals. So, you know, how, how is this honoring to God? And so Paul's writing into that context. Chapter 1 is telling the Gentile Christians, you guys are under the judgment of God. Even if you didn't, even if you didn't have a Torah to disobey, God has made his moral law known to you by the conscience he's written on your heart. And now in chapter 2, he turns to talk to the Jewish Christians. So let's just look at uh, verse 12 here. This is uh, Romans 2, verse 12. He says, Paul says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Okay, so if you don't have the law, but, you're, but your conscience tells you that you, you should not be proud, you shouldn't murder, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't be arrogant, you do that anyways, you're under the condemnation of your own conscience. So you don't need God to tell you not to murder to know that murder is wrong. Right? So your conscience knows that some things are wrong. When you violate your conscience, then you're under the judgment of your conscience. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So that's interesting for church people, right? So especially kind of in our movement, we like to hear the law, right? We, we come to church multiple times a week, some of us, to hear the law, to hear what the Bible says. So Paul said, don't, I mean, don't hear the inverse, which he doesn't say, which is it's, it's bad to hear the law. That's not true. But the, the important point he's making here is it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous. So just because you know the Bible, just because you hear truth, just because you come to Dr. Black's Wednesday night Bible class, which is awesome, you guys should all come to it, but just because you're there doesn't mean you're righteous. 
um, it's the doers of the law who will be justified. It's those who follow and live out the law. For when Gentiles, so these are non-Jewish people who don't have the Torah, who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So again, I'm not trying to be a, a theologian here this morning and kind of solve these theological complexities and important spiritual problems, but I do think there's kind of echoes here. Paul's talking about the, uh, the infamous man in the jungle who's never heard about Jesus, right? And the law is written on his heart. And so how does that apply? I don't know. I, mean, I, I think uh, part of the beauty of Christianity is you can read the text for yourself. But Paul says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So the, the conflicting thoughts and how you act or don't act uh, to your conscience acts as, a, as an accuser or excuser in your moral life. So this is interesting. So we have the law and we don't follow the law, right? And so we, it's clear that you stand in violation of the law. If you know that you're not allowed to go 40 miles an hour, you get pulled over for going 70 miles an hour, or, or in my case, the, the hospital I moonlight at in Huntington, so Huntington, Tennessee, is a town of like, I don't know, there's a Walmart, there's a, I mean, it's small, whatever. They have a, a camera on the road that takes a picture of your license plate if the laser interprets that you're going beyond the speed limit. So this is a town that like, doesn't have like I think I think has a post office they have a laser camera to, to film your car so the point the theological point behind uh, the camera in Huntington Tennessee is I'm going 50 miles an hour they send a picture of my license tag to my house say hey you got to pay this bill you're going 10 miles over the speed limit so I can't say that's not fair I'm allowed to go 50 right I knew the law I was 40 I'm going 50 so I've got to send them like a hundred bucks for this camera I didn't even know what happened it came in the mail Lauren said it on my desk. It was really good news to, to open that mail. So they got a picture of my license plate and everything. It's like, you didn't not yet. You don't have to. You don't have to yet. Oh, really? Let's talk after class. <laughs> yeah. That's good news. You don't have to. Yeah, is that like grace? Is it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so here's how, here's how N.T. Wright breaks this down. He says, sometimes what's going on inside the package doesn't match the badge. So this is a, a section of his book on Romans where he's, he kind of describes people as wearing badges. You're either wearing badges. I'm a Christian. You know, I'm, a, I'm not a Christian, but I'm a good moral person. I don't judge people like Christians judge. I'm a I'm Muslim. I'm Hindu. And kind of you kind of proclaim to the world, um, your virtue by the badge you wear. That's the, the metaphor he's playing with. So sometimes what's going on inside the package doesn't match the badge and the name on the outside. When that happens, the badge means the opposite of what it says. So for example, if a Jew breaks the law, his circumcision becomes, in effect, uncircumcision. Right? So you've got a Jew, he's wearing this badge, I guess not badge not really on the outside, but you know what I'm saying, his badge of circumcision, right? So he's circumcised, he's wearing the badge of his Jewishness. But if he's not living up to the standards of the law, then the badge is doing just the opposite, right? 
if a Jew breaks the law, his circumcision becomes, in effect, uncircumcision. Not that he ceases to be physically circumcised, but that his real standing before God is the same as that of an uncircumcised Gentile. So what does that mean? That means for a Jewish person, if they're outwardly living uh, consistent with a law, but inwardly they're full of pride and jealousy and sexual immorality and, um, I mean, you name the sin, right? Then, then they're not Jewish, right? It's, God cares about what's on the inside. You know, man look at the, looks at the outward appearance, the Lord looks at the heart. And so that's, that's the point here in Romans 2. So here's the gospel truth. Every religion, or even no religion, every worldview, except for Christianity, has essentially the same message. If you want to be good, here's what you do, right? So if you want to be seen as good, so I think most people are going to recognize something similar to the problems that Paul talks about in Romans 1 and 2. We're not who we're supposed to be, right? We all have some kind of moral code, and we all don't quite live up to that code. So every worldview has a solution to that problem but something like this. Here's what you do. Here are the five steps. Here are the festivals you must keep. Here's the trip you must take. Here is the meditation time that you must uh, participate in. Here are the ways that you need to reframe your thinking. Here's the power of positive thinking, right? Here are the things you have to do to be made right before God or to be made successful in and of the world. Here are the things you have to do, right? Christianity says exactly the opposite. Christianity does not say, here's what you have to do to be declared righteous before God, to be made right. Christianity says, here's what he did. Right? Here's what he did. Because the truth is, if the standard is moral perfection, it's this impossible standard to ever be accomplished. Right? You're not, I'm not going to do that. Right? I, don't have that, that, I don't have that level of self-control. I don't have that level of wisdom to make that level of right decisions. I don't um, have that level of patience. It's just, I just, it's not in, I'm not, that's not in the cards for me to live a morally perfect life. Even if, even if I could live a morally perfect life moving forward, that wouldn't remove the guilt and shame and regret I have for things that I've done in the past. Right? And there's plenty of it. Right? So the solution for Christianity, I think, is, is honest. And it's also um, radically different than any other worldview, which I think kind of all has the same solution. Here are the things you got to do. Christianity says to be made right and to be reconciled to a holy and loving God, Jesus came in our place and lived a life that we couldn't live, received the punishment that we deserve to receive before this God, conquered the enemies that we couldn't conquer, sin and death, and then raised from the grave in glorious resurrection so that we could live with God forever. Right? So that's the, that's the message of Christianity and how it's so radically different from every other way of seeing the world. It's also freeing because you can stop trying. Right? God's not going to forgive you more. God's not going to love you more if you do better at your Bible reading this week, or you make sure you read two chapters a day, or you show up at church on Wednesday night, or you make it to prayer group on whatever time like God God loves you right now as you are with the sin you got the addictions you got the mistakes you're making you don't have to change anything to make God love you right God loves you here and in the process of moral transformation how you change and alter and adjust your life that's a different question right we'll come to that later but all of this all of the moral transformation that God calls us to do all of that is seen in context and it in context and seen after God's declaration on you that you're good with him. 
come as you are right now, this moment, you are righteous in my sight. You trust in Jesus Christ, God declares you righteous. Everything else is just kind of postscript, epilogue, the good, the good news at the end of the book. But God, God loves you as you are. All right, chapter 3. God's, righteous, God's righteousness has rescued the world. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, Paul said it better than I can say it. Maybe we should do that. All right, Romans 3. Uh, so the key point is that God's righteousness has rescued the world through Jesus. So if you said, David, there aren't these great questions. If you were on a desert island and you could only have one paragraph to read the rest of your life, what would it be? It would be Romans 3, 21 through 26. I think this is the whole Bible. In fact, I think um, if you understand this paragraph, you understand the reason that you were created, you understand the great promise that you have as a human, and you understand the beauty that God's offering you. So I cut off the last little bit of it just because I don't think we have time to break down all of it. But let's just kind of walk a little verse by verse through this, this paragraph. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifested apart from the law. So in a Jewish thought, which of course Paul was a Jew, this idea of God's righteousness was very important. So righteousness means to be true. All right, so if you think like an, a righteous arrow is going to go true to the mark, it's going to hit the bullseye, it's going to be consistent with its values. So God being righteous means whatever it is that God's values are, whatever it is that his qualities are, he's going to be true to those. So God's qualities include love and they include justice. And so Paul's saying here that, that God's love and justice are perfectly manifested so that, we can all, so that everyone can see, not just... Uh, the Jewish people who received the Torah, but the whole world. And it's manifested apart from the law. He's talking about the Torah there. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So this is important. So it's not like this new, uh, it's not like this new religion came out of nowhere, right? So the law and the prophets, the Old Testament teaching, bears witness, gives hints, gives shadows and foretastes of what was coming. But now it's here. The righteousness of God through faith, so you get the trueness of God and you receive that through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All right, so here's a little hellfire and brimstone uh, phrase here. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I just emphasize this word, all. And we've, we've kind of talked enough negative here that I don't want to labor on it anymore. But, but all, that, that includes all, right? There, there's not, it's not everyone in the world but me. So I, I, I preach and I tell about the Bible, but I don't have to worry about my standing before God. All have sinned. And I think if you're honest with yourself, you know that's true. You know that you're not um, a morally perfect person. right? And, and you know that there's actually, not only that, there's something wrong in your heart. There's a, a, an emptiness that we feel as we pursue the desires of our heart and recognize that those desires don't fill us up. Right? I know that that's been the experience of my life. When I try to fill this hole in my heart with the things that my fleshly self says that I want and need, I'm still hungry. I'm still empty. And the reason is, is because I am included in, in this all. But we are justified by His grace as a gift. So maybe uh, if I had my MDiv, I would like to, to break this down. Maybe Eric can do this for us sometime. But this idea of grace, the Greek word here is, is gift. Like grace and gift is like the same root. So Paul is kind of saying here, we're justified by his gift as a gift. right? It's like a, 
there's a lot of like gift giving going on in, in the gospel. So Paul is really emphasizing here. Apparently, this phrase is almost kind of awkward in the Greek because it, it's it's made awkward on purpose to kind of emphasize this is something that, that that God has given us through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. It's another big word we don't like multi-syllable words and Paul being a, a theologian he loves commas and run-on sentences and multi-syllable words he does a, a lot of that here so this idea of propitiation is um, the, the connotation of like a stand-in for judgment so this is the idea that um, I was due and rightly could be given God's judgment on my life but Jesus acted as a stand-in in my place and receive God's wrath that was rightly due me. So, so propitiation in law would be like in, in, um, in Western legal philosophy, the idea of propitiation would be abhorrent, right? We would not punish, um, we wouldn't punish Kyle for a crime that I committed, right? That would be, um, you know, grossly immoral. Or, or you certainly wouldn't punish uh, throw a son in jail because his father uh, committed some uh, atrocity, right? So this is what makes Christianity so countercultural, so radical, so awe-inspiring, is that we deserve the punishment, but a propitiation stood in our place with his blood, and we can receive that gift of forgiveness through faith, through faith, by, tr- by trusting in Christ. Okay. Um, oh, so here's Tim Keller. This is a great quote, man. I, when you read Tim Keller, he's one of those guys like makes you jealous. Like, man, I wish that I was as good with words and writing as he is. But l- listen to how he says this. Through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God fully accomplishes salvation for us, rescuing us from judgment for sin into fellowship with him, and then restores the creation in which we can enjoy our new life together with him forever. We could spend a whole class breaking that quote down, but there's deep, deep wisdom there. The gospel truth here, which I think we're just going to press on for, but these are the, the, solo, the solas of the uh, Reformation. I, I think there's some good stuff here. Um, part of the point here in, in Romans 3 is the sola Christus, Christ alone. Jesus Christ alone is our Lord, Savior, and King. This offer of salvation, this offer of propitiation, comes only through Jesus Christ. And that's what makes the mission of the church so important. Because... As opposed to ancient Judaism, Christianity is a multi-ethnic religion. In fact, uh, K- Keller said it this way. I thought it was pretty good. He said, Christianity is the most diverse globally and socioeconomically religion in the history of the world. There's no other religion that has people from so many different colors living on so many different continents in so many different cities with so many different levels of wealth and so many different levels of education. There are Christians who are at the very top of the socioeconomic spectrum and at the very bottom. There's Christians who have no melanin in their skin and Christians who have ultimate melanin in their skin. There's Christians who live in cold places and hot places all over the world. And that is the point of Romans 4. So God did something dramatically different in Jesus Christ than what the story of the Jewish people, the story of God's people had been before Jesus. He created the faith-based multi-ethnic community of Abraham. So remember, Abraham's this Jewish guy wandering around in the desert, really is not that good of a guy. Kind of, I mean, he's got some, some problems, some kind of deep 
immorality in his life, and God calls him out of the world and says, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. Promises him three things, a great land, a great nation. He's going to create a bunch of people from him. And then he's going to bless the whole world through Abraham. And so the fulfillment of that promise given thousands of years ago underneath the desert starlit sky is coming to fruition in Romans. This is one of the reasons, I, I mean, I don't want to get off on this, but one of the reasons I believe the Bible is it fits together so beautifully. So you think about this story that happened 3,000 years before Jesus, and Jesus is fulfilling that story here, and in, in, in Paul's talking about it here in Romans. So let's look at verse 16 here, 16 through 18. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. So he's talking about Abraham, Abraham's promise. It, de- it depends on faith, not on ethnicity, right? So we, there's a lot of talk about tribalism, and, and certainly not what I want to talk about this morning in class. But the point that Paul's making here is that, that the Jesus religion, the Jesus people, it depends on faith, not on blood. It depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope. That he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. There's a lot there. You talk. Have you ever been here? In hope, he believed against hope. There's been a time you're like, I got, I got nothing. There's nothing left for me here in this situation. Abraham, in hope, believed against hope. Because God promised him, you will be the father of many nations. And so what's happened? Right now, two billion people across the planet on every continent from almost every nation and speaking in thousands of languages all across the world are part of the nation and the people of Abraham, right? And there was a time and a moment in Abraham's life where his wife literally laughed at this idea, right? So why did it happen? Did it happen because Abraham was a strategic political thinker? No, it happened because God is God and he had a plan and God fulfills his plan. So, I wouldn't be teaching class if I didn't quote my man David Platt. So, I want to quote him here. He's talking about, uh, this is in his book Radical, he's talking about when you're on your deathbed, when you're about to die, what are the things you're going to be thinking about. He says, We will wish we had given more of ourselves to living for the day when every nation, tribe, people, and language will bow around the throne and sing the praises of of the Savior who delights in radical obedience and the God who deserves eternal worship. A core thinking of Christian, th- of Christian teaching and theology is that this is a message for every nation. This is a message for everyone. Right? That's the point of Romans 4, and that's exactly why good Christian theology should fuel good Christian mission. So why, would, why do we need to be thinking about sending people to the hard places? Uh, China's cracking down on Christianity right now. Can't sell Bibles anymore. They're, they're new... I guess he's now, uh, he uh, named himself President for Life, so he's, he's going to be running, running the show there. He's kind of cracking down on stuff. Should we still go to China? Yes. Why should we still go to China? Because this message is for people who live in China who, who are oppressed and don't get to hear it, right? This message is for the world. 
So the gospel truth is the divine rescue plan of Jesus includes people from every nation, and it will be completed. So I, lo- I love um, the way that Platt phrases this. He says, who will bow down around the throne and sing the praises of the Savior. So there's almost like a, a, a confident um, pride, almost, like a, a, a prognostication. He's not saying like, Man, I think the Vols are going to win Saturday, which would probably not be a good prediction most <laughs> most weeks. But he's not saying, like, I, I have an informed, educated disposition. I think this is going to happen. Things that worked out in the past will probably work out in the future. He's really kind of claiming it. So why is he claiming that so strongly? And the truth is because we have the answer. So sometimes a, a, a preacher will kind of a colloquially say, like, I've read the end of the story. We win. You know, you, you've heard that. And it sounds kind of silly. We roll our eyes. But... But just because it's silly doesn't mean it's not true. So why is Platt so confident? Why is Paul so confident? Well, the end of the story, let's, let's, if, you've got, if you want to flip over there, Revelation 7, verse 9 and 10. Why can we go confidently into nations, into tribes, into areas of the world that are dangerous, that are unevangelized, that haven't heard or believed the gospel, and know that somebody at some point is coming out? Right? You, we can go into the dangerous places because we know somebody ultimately is coming out in the end. And the reason we can do that is because Revelation 7 says that it's going to happen. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on, our throne, on the throne and to the Lamb. That is the promise, and that's the day that Revelation 1 through 4 is pointing towards. That's why it's so special to me. So that's justification. That's Romans 1 through 4. We'll pick up on sanctification, Romans 5 and forward, starting next week. Will you guys pray with me? <clears throat> Father, you are so good, and you have blessed us so richly. Father, there's such a tendency in our own hearts to trust in and feel confident in our own pride or our own standing in this world. And God, we just confess that sin. God, we just pray that you would supernaturally give us um, the true worldview of yours and help us to to lean on and rely on you for a mission that's so much bigger um, than our own um, puny thoughts in this world. God, I'm so sorry for my lack of understanding or communication of your word, and I'm so thankful for what you revealed to us about who you are and whose we are. God, I pray that you would just continue to honor um, your children around the world who uh, live in suffering and are are reaching out for community and for you. God, thank you for fathers um, in our church, in our city, and around the globe who have made the decision to, to, to do the hard work and to love their children for your namesake. And God, we pray that you be glorified through uh, that commitment. Thank you for all you've given us, especially your son. Your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, I want to thank David for doing an exceptional job with chapters 1 through 4. Effectively, this is the gospel, uh, as it were. As David said, chapter 3, really, you know, 21 through 26, it kind of has it all. Um, and I've heard David speak now on the gospel I don't know, a dozen times, and I think this is really his wheelhouse, and so I hope you really enjoyed that. I know that I did. Uh, Next week, it'll be me, Kyle, who is back with uh, Romans chapters 5 through 8. It turns out that chapter 8 is, really, it's my favorite chapter in the Bible. Um, It's not just me, John Piper. It turns out he did an entire year at his church just on chapter 8 of Romans. 
So how, uh, I don't know, ironic is the right way to say it, but how funny it is that we're going to try and do it in one week, uh, in one 40-minute span, uh, we'll try and get through Romans 8. It actually has my two favorite Bible verses uh, in the entire Bible, Romans 8, 38, and 39, and so we'll end with that next week. And so I invite you to come back and to listen with us. Of course, if you're in the Memphis area and it's convenient, come join us. We'll be uh, at Highland Church of Christ, Houston Levy. Um, and Walnut Grove, basically 400 North Houston Levy. Uh, 10 a.m. in our classroom for the Bridge Builders class. We would love to have you join us. If you're ever passing through, definitely come and visit us. And again, we'll be Romans 5 through 8 next week. Thanks for joining us this week. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any thoughts on this podcast or ways that you think we can make it better, uh, absolutely reach out to me on Facebook and give us that feedback. And I just hope you have a great and blessed week. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.